Now we're turning to the book of Zechariah tonight in our Through the Bible, book by book, as we're approaching the close of the Old Testament. You never thought we'd get there, did you? But we are. One more book in the Old Testament, and we'll have finished the Old Testament. And if you put your finger in the pl- in uh, between the close of Malachi and the opening of Matthew, and then look at the edge of your Bible, you'll see that we're three-quarters of the way through the Scriptures. So even though we're only through the Old Testament, we've covered three-quarters of the Bible. So don't discourage Don't get discouraged. We're going to finish yet, the Lord willing. Now, uh, Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah, is the greatest and the largest of the so-called minor prophets. It's a book as large as the book of Daniel, and in many ways it's very, very similar to the book of Daniel. It's been called the Apocalypse of the Old Testament. And many of you know that the word apocalypse is another name for the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And uh, like the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Daniel is a book of prophecy. The theme of this book is to set forth the program of God. And if you've read the book of Revelation recently, you remember that's the theme of the book, uh, of the closing book of the New Testament as well. The difference is that in Zechariah, you have Israel in the foreground and the Gentile nations in the background. But in the book of Revelation, you have the reverse. The Gentile nations in the foreground, while running in the background as a continuous thread that ties them together, is the nation of Israel. Now, in this first book, uh, first verse of Zechariah, you can see... Uh, this fact that this focuses on the nation Israel. It begins in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, so on. And we usually read through these opening verses without thinking much about them as having any significance. But by now, I hope you've caught on to the fact that these Names always are significant. Hebrew names mean something. Remember, we've looked before at the meaning of some of those names. Uh, the most outstanding, perhaps, of which is, uh, is uh, Methuselah, the name of the oldest man that ever lived, whose name means when he dies, it will come. And when he died, the flood came, just as that name prophesied. Now, here we have three names that are very significant. Zechariah means God remembers. And uh, Berechiah, his father's name, means God blesses. And his grandfather, Ido, means at the appointed time. I'll put those together. God remembers and God blesses at the appointed time. And that's the theme of the book of Zechariah. It's a book of encouragement to the people of Israel. You recall that Zechariah was a contemporary with Haggai, whom we looked at last week together. One of the prophets who ministered to the returned remnant who had come back out of the the, uh, captivity in Babylon 
and it was now back in Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city, but still a vassal to the powers, the Gentile powers of Babylon. Without any national center, with uh, still subject to the Gentile nations around them, without any hope much for the future, it was a discouraging and depressing time. A spirit of dank, dark pessimism gripped these people. And Zechariah comes to them with this announcement that's even wrapped up in his names, in his ancestry. Jehovah blesses, Jehovah remembers at the appointed time. And uh, what an encouragement those names must have been. Now, verses 2 and 3 of this first opening chapter gives a brief outline of the book. And this is often true in the Bible. Learn to look for these little outlines. You'll oftentimes find in opening sections a brief summary of the message of the book. And it's broken up in a dramatic way by the phrase, by the name of God, Jehovah of hosts. One of the unusual names of God, Jehovah of hosts. That is, the God of the masses, the God of all the armies, whether they be angel armies, human armies, demonic armies, doesn't make any difference. The stars are called the hosts. This is the God who is sovereign over all the masses, whoever they may be. And it's repeated three times. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord, that is Jehovah, was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says Jehovah of hosts, or the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Three times that name is repeated. And uh, what is said before each of those marks the divisions of this book. It falls into three brief divisions. The first one is in Included in this word, uh, your fathers, I, I was ve- the Lord was very angry with your fathers. That marks the first division, which really is just the first six verses. God's displeasure with his people. And then we have returned to me. And that marks the second division. And that covers from verse one, uh, verse seven of chapter one. Clear over to verse uh, 15 of chapter 6. God's deliverance of his people. And then beginning at chapter 7, or or rather, uh, yes, chapter 7, verse 1 through 14, verse 21, you have the third division, which is uh, exposition of these words, and I will return to you, says the Lord. There's the message. Return to me. And I will return to you. That's always God's way. If you find yourself straying away from his presence, and therefore your life grows cold, your faith grows dim, you grow discouraged, you're defeated, you find yourself exposed to all types of temptations and pray to every evil thought, what's the trouble? Return to me, says the Lord. And I'll return to you. You want God back in your life, in all the glory of his presence? Well, then come back to him. That's always the formula. Return to me, and I will return to you. Now, uh, we have this 
developed in the book. And as I've suggested, the first six verses are just a very brief resume of what of God's quarrel with his people. Uh, the fact that they had displeased him and uh, how they were behaving. We've seen this all through the Old Testament. There's no need to dwell upon this. It's always true, whether it's we're looking at God's people of Israel or God's people of the church, the same is true. And then beginning with verse 7, you have a most remarkable vision that was given to the prophet. A vision that is divided up into... Uh, uh, a series of eight subdivisions, of eight visions, which all were given to Zechariah on the same night. And these two fall into three major divisions. I'm not going to read them or dwell on them. I'll have to leave that up to you because we can't take time to read through in a book of this length. But uh, these three divisions are like three acts in a great drama that was revealed to the prophet. You can think of them as God's first-nighter program, because all of these came on one night to the prophet. And uh, uh, as we read them, it's as though we were invited to attend and see this drama that God is unfolding to the prophet. God is the author, and Zechariah is the producer, and we are the audience. And the, the uh, vision covers all the present time from Israel, from Zechariah's day, Clear on to the coming of the Lord. Now, I suggested it falls into three acts. And the first act is made up of two visions. One was a vision of a watcher looking over the people in the valley. And the people uh, were riding, or the man, the watcher, was riding uh, upon a horse. And with him were gathered other riders upon a horse. Sounds like a TV western, doesn't it? But he was watching out over the valley. And uh, uh, the angel of the Lord interprets the vision to the prophet. Now, the meaning of this is simply that Israel was that people down in the valley, in the myrtle bush, symbolized for us here by the lowly shrub, the myrtle. And they could see that they were in a shadowed place. It was a time of despair. It was a time of defeat. It was a time of difficult days. But what they couldn't see was what the prophet was revealing to them, the unseen watcher who was watching the whole procedure and saw what was going on and had with him the great resources to meet their need in the hour of despair. Now, the second division uh, speaks of four smiths. And when I read that, I wondered whether it was Bob and Pearl and Dave and Don, <laughs> but it's not. Smiths, of course, are workmen, carpenters, actually, here. The four horns and the four smiths. And uh, again, this is interpreted to the prophet. He sees that these, like the writers in the vision before, are divine agents, angels, perhaps, who are sent out to terrify the nations, we're told. Now, you see, again, this is a picture of the desperate need of Israel to return to God. That's the name of Act 1 in this play, the need to return to God. Here you are in a discouraging place. Well, that ought to be reason enough to return. And there's a watcher watching you. And then there are powers and forces and opposition against you. That's what Israel saw. But what they didn't see 
was the resources. They were unconscious of the divine agents that were there to move on their behalf. And God revealed that to them. And then the curtain falls at the end of Act 1. And then opens in chapter 2 with Act 2, which is one single vision. The name of this act is the promise of blessing to those who return. And it's a vision of a man with a measuring line in his hand who went out to measure the city of Jerusalem. And as he measured the city, the interpreting angel said to the prophet, uh, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle in it. For I will be to her a wall of fire round about, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within her. And then there's a beautiful description of the days of blessing that's to come upon Israel. And uh, this was all uh, to be literally fulfilled as Israel would be someday brought back again into the place of blessing in the land of Israel. Now, what is this? Well, this is the picture of God's promise to those who return. It's always one of blessing. Come back to me, and blessing flows from that act. For God is the center of blessing. There isn't any blessing can come from any other source. If your life is empty, you need God. If you're a Christian and your life is empty, you need to return to God. It's out of the resources of his fullness that blessing comes. And uh, the man with the measuring line is simply a very descriptive symbolism for the unlimited, measureless blessing that God is ready to pour out into a life that comes back into relationship with him. Now, the, that was Act 2. Act 3 opens now with uh, four, uh, or let's see, no, several other visions here. There's first the man with the measuring line, and then uh, we have uh, four other visions that follow, yes. Uh, first, there's the the uh, flying scroll. I'm sorry, it's Joshua the high priest is the next vision here. Uh, this opens Act 3 in Chapter 3. And the title of this act is The Way of Return Revealed. Now, you don't know how to get back to God? Well, here it is, acted out for you. In these five scenes that are recorded in these visions. The first is a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before God. And there's the judge. And here's Joshua. And over opposed to him is Satan, the adversary. Now the people could see the adversary. They knew that Satan was against them. But what they couldn't see was the advocate, the one who stood on their behalf and who ministered for them. And this is a wonderfully moving vision of how Joshua is cleansed. His filthy garments are taken off. And he's clad, clad in new, clean garments. And the promise is given that God would do this simply because he chose to do so. I have chosen Joshua, he says, just as he says of us. Why does he bless us? Well, because he's chosen to do so, that's all. He's chosen us. And then he justifies it in the latter part of this vision in verses 6 through 10 by a wonderful vision that looks forward to the work of Christ upon the cross. He says in verse 8, uh, uh, 
Uh, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men of good omen. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Who's that? Uh, This is one of the titles of the Lord Jesus. My servant, the branch. And uh, he says, I will bring him. For behold, upon the stone which I have set before Joshua, upon a single stone with seven faces, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll remove the guilt of this land in a single day. Marvelous prophecy of the coming of the one who would be Jehovah's servant, the branch, and who would uh, be graven upon in the marks of the crucifixion, and who would be the instrument by which the guilt of the land is removed in a single day. And in that day, blessing would flow out. And this is God's justification for his right to cleanse the sinner without charging him or accusing him or condemning him. He could do this. Cleansing is the first way back. And then scene two brings us to the lampstand and the olive trees. And here we see what follows. The cleansing of God. The power of the Holy Spirit. It pictures the Spirit-filled life. The oil always speaks of the Holy Spirit. And here were olive trees that were dripping oil out of their branches continuously into a lampstand that was burning brightly. What a wonderful symbolism that is of uh, the fact that the Lord within us is constantly supplying that inner strengthening that makes it possible for us to burn brightly as lights in the midst of a dark generation. And then the apostle or the prophet saw a flying scroll, a roll flying through the air. And it was uh, not uh, a cinnamon roll. It was a scroll rolled up the scriptures flying through the air. Uh, a gigantic one of immense size. And it was written on both sides with curses against the thieves and the blasphemers among the people. And it pictures the judgment of Israel. The fact that there was, uh, that there was corruption, but there was also law going forth. Now they could see the corruption, but they couldn't see the law. And again, this is God's encouragement in the hour of darkness. When you can see corruption abroad, you say things are going to pot, everything's going to pieces. But what they couldn't see was God's agency working to bring uh, a curse upon that lawlessness and to bring it to an end. Then uh, he next saw a woman in an ephah. Now an ephah is a big basket, like a bushel basket. And the woman was in this. And she, while they watched, the There were wings given to this, and it flew away to the land of Babylon. Now, what does all this strange thing mean? If you had a vision like that, you'd think, you'd wonder what you'd been eating the night before. But the prophet knows that this is a a meaningful vision given to him. And as he meditates upon it, uh, he, he can understand this, because these are terms that are used elsewhere in the Scripture. A woman covered over by a slab of lead within a basket. Now, whenever a woman appears in Scripture, symbolically, it always refers to something wrong religiously. (laughs) Well, I didn't invent that. The Scriptures did. (laughs) And here is the picture of the judgment 
of the of the false faith, false church, if you like, very much as we have in the book of Revelation, the woman who is the false church, who is called Babylon the Great. And Zechariah sees the same thing, God's judgment upon hypocritical religion, the false faith. And then the prophet sees the four chariots, uh, which uh, rode out upon the earth, very much like, again, the vision in Revelation of the four horsemen who ride out and uh, bring uh, judgment upon the world. And this, again, links with that as a picture of the worldwide judgment of the Gentile nations by God. Now, the curtain rings down then on this great drama of redemption of the future. It's God's great symbolic play of the way back to him, first by cleansing, then by the then the filling of the Holy Spirit, then the putting away of evil in its various forms, and finally the judgment of the entire earth as God brings to to the judgment seat the uh, uh, evil of men now chapter 7 marks a diff- uh, a new division in the book and in this uh, chapter we find god speaking in a different way in the opening chapters it was all in visions but now with chapter 7 he speaks directly to the prophet in the in the way that we've been accustomed to in many of the books of the bible in a direct address And uh, the heart of this section is the announcement of the prophet in chapter 8, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Here's a picture of God dwelling in his people. Now, one day this is going to be fulfilled, literally, on the earth. I clipped out of the San Francisco Chronicle a number of weeks ago a very interesting article entitled Israel uh, Concerned About Building the Temple. And in the land of Israel, uh, the people of that area are very, very intent upon getting again into their hands, if they can, the site of the old temple in order that a temple might be built again on that spot. It's presently in the hands of the of the Arab rulers of Jordan. And the the Jews are not permitted into that area at all. But they intend to get that site. And when they do, they want to erect a temple upon it. And scripture has long predicted that this would be one of the opening signs that God was about to move again to restore Israel at last to its place among the nations. Now we can read this section with great interest because it is picturing that which is historically coming to pass and will come to pass. But we can read it even with greater interest because it pictures that which is spiritually symbolized in our own lives. God in the midst of us. What will the result be? God dwelling in us, renewing the inner man. A fountain of blessing pouring out in our lives, making us fruitful and effective and uh, a blessing to all with whom we come in contact. That's the picture of these last scenes. Now, in the development of this, there are some amazingly accurate messianic prophecies. Many of you know that the Old Testament has these sections in it that look forward and describe in detail the coming of Jesus Christ. 
And many of you perhaps are not acquainted where exactly where these prophetic passages lie. But a, men, a number of them are in this last half of the book of Zechariah. And I'll point them out to you as we go along. This opens with a, in chapter 7 and 8, which link together with a plea of God to the people to be honest and open before him. And uh, uh, it's again a rehearsal of their failures in his sight, and then a reminder that uh, he is unfailing in his mercy and in his grace, but he's unchanging in his standards. He never lowers his standards. He always supplies that which is necessary, but he never, uh, he never lowers the standard. And the people react, as people always do, in three ways. Verse, chapter 7, verse 11. They refused to hearken and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. That's always the first step. Uh, they pretend not to hear. And then, verse 12, they made their hearts like adamant, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. That is, they deliberately disobeyed. And the result was, they began to play the hypocrite. And that's the way the chapter opens, with a question of the people. Should we keep on with these feasts that we began in Babylon? And God's word to them is, well, why are you doing it? Because you mean this? Or because you simply want to put on a sign? a show of religion. And uh, these are the very ways we avoid the will of God today, isn't it? I remember years ago, one of my daughters, I'll not mention which one, (laughs) was told to put on a green dress. Her mother told her to put on a green dress. And it was interesting to watch her. She pretended at first not to hear. And her mother repeated it several times. And then she just said, no. She said, I don't want to wear that dress. And she openly rebelled. And then when it looked as though she had to wear it, she came up to her mother and she said, well, mother, I want to wear the green dress, but it's just too dirty. Which wasn't true at all. In other words, she followed exactly the program that's outlined here. She pretended not to hear. She directly disobeyed, and then she played the hypocrite and pretended that it was was right and proper that she should disobey this way. How accurately, you see, this catches up the inherent tendencies in the human heart. But now God God goes on through the prophet here to to point out uh, that the result will be that uh, there's a blindness to truth. And that ultimately, they lose the ability to hear and lose the ability to see. And in chapters 9 and 10, we have this set forth for us. The picture of the blindness of the people and the fact that uh, these things are hidden from their eyes. And in verse 9 of chapter 9, you have one of those first glimpses of the coming of the, of the Messiah. Here's this uh, verse that begins, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. And you recall how those were literally fulfilled 
in the New Testament when our Lord uh, sent his disciples to find a colt and an ass. And he mounted the ass and rode in triumph into the streets of Jerusalem with the people going before and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And exactly and unconsciously fulfilling this prophecy of, of uh, Zechariah, Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant, victorious. And you'll know him because he's riding on, a, on an ass accompanied with a colt. And yet they didn't know him, and they didn't recognize him when he came, even in such a remarkable way. And you remember on that same day, the Lord Jesus went out and sat on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city, and he wept as he looked out over the uh, impenitent city, and he said these remarkable words, Oh, if thou hadst only known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the thing which belongs unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. And you see, this chapter goes on to say that's what happens. When God moves in your life, and you don't listen, you lose the ability to hear. These things are hid from thine eyes. And the judgment of blindness came upon these people. Now, in chapter 11, after rebuff after rebuff, the Messiah again, speaking through the prophet, says in verse 12, these amazing words, Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, Give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 shekels of silver. How much did Judas contract for to betray our Lord? 30 shekels of silver. According to the law, this was the price of a slave that had been gored by an ox. That's, that is one of the cheapest things they could think of. If a slave were, was gored by an ox, the man's ox, the man who owned the ox could pay and settle the whole matter by paying his neighbor 30 shekels of silver. And here the Messiah speaking to these people is saying, all right, now look, if you, if you want me, say so. But if you don't, give me my wages. What do you think I'm worth to you? And they weighed out for his price 30 shekels of silver. And then comes in view the second result of, of an unrepentant life, unrepentant heart in chapter 11. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the implements of a worthless shepherd. For lo, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for the perishing or seek the wandering, or heal the maimed, or nourish the sound, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword smite his arm in his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered in his right eye, utterly blinded. In other words, if you refuse the true shepherd, God will allow you to have a false shepherd. And again, it was the Lord Jesus who said to, uh, to the Pharisees, the blinded Pharisees of his day, I am come in my Father's name, 
and you receive me not. Another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. And this is that character that Paul tells us about in Thessalonians, whom he calls the, uh, the man of sin who comes to Israel as their deliverer and is received as the Messiah, but turns out to be the anti-Messiah, what we know as the Antichrist, the false shepherd who comes when they reject and refuse the true. And isn't this oftentimes the case? I've often wondered at the number of people who fall into these Christian, uh, anti-Christian cults that abound today. Why is it? And time after time I've found that they have done so because they've rejected some opportunity to hear the truth. And as a result, they fall into the clutches of that which sounds like truth, but is a lie. As Paul says, God will send them strong delusion that they might believe a lie who receive not the love of the truth. And then we come to chapter, the last section, chapter 12 through 14, where we have set forth wonderfully for us this beautiful picture of the fact that God finds a way to come back into the life of his people. And uh, it opens with these words, verse 2, Lo, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling to all the peoples round about. It will be against Judah, also in the siege against Jerusalem. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it shall grievously hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will come together against it. We're watching with, with great interest Israel back in their land of promise again. And all the hope that seems to be gathered about that, that wonderful restoration. And yet, according to the scriptures, the darkest days for Jerusalem lie yet ahead. It shall become a burden to the nations, a grievous stone of stumbling, the, the, the prophetic scriptures say. And the peoples, the nations, shall be gathered together about the city. And Zechariah tells us uh, that God will not allow himself to be ignored. He vows that he'll break through into human consciousness. And uh, it will come about this way. Verse 9, chapter 12. On that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Isn't that amazing? Israel in its blindness, refusing its Messiah, refusing to recognize the one God sent, never realizing that the one whom they pierced is coming again. And when he comes, he'll speak the words recorded in chapter 13, verse 6. If anyone asks him, what are these wounds on your back? Or in what other versions it says, in your hands. He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. You see, 
this ties in with a vivid descriptive scene in chapter 14. Behold, a day of the Lord is coming when the spoil taken from you will be divided in the midst of you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women ravished and half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then, then the Lord will go forth and fight against these nations as when he fought on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Remember, that was the last place that Jesus stood on this earth. He went out with his disciples onto the Mount of Olives. And as they watched him, he was taken up out of their sight into the heavens. And an angel standing there said to them, This same Jesus, whom you see going into heaven, shall so come in like manner again. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall withdraw northward and the other half southward. And the valley of my mountain shall be stopped up, for the valley of the mountain shall touch the side of it, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah the king. Geologists have long known that one of the greatest faults in the earth's surface runs right through the Mount of Olives. A, a mountain shall be split in half. And then what? Well, then you see, it looks on to the day when Israel, having seen its Messiah, and mourned for the one whom it pierced, and having recognized it with great mourning that it had turned its back upon the one sent of God, then we read verse 8 of chapter 14. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On, the day, the, on that day the Lord will be one and his name one. And then follows a beautifully descriptive passage of the glory of the earth in the day when God shall reign as king over the earth in his son. And it closes with these beautiful words in verse 20, chapter 14. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the flesh of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a, tra a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Every commonplace thing made to be holy to the Lord. You know that's what God's promising to you? Every moment of your life, every commonplace thing touched with the glory of his presence, when he is in the center of your life. It shall be true visibly in the earth someday. It can be true spiritually right now. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer here. Our Holy Father, we thank you for the beauty of this vision and for the truth of it. We know that 
Thou art forever reminding us that thy word is true. And uh, how foolish it is that we should ever turn from it, or cast it aside, or be indifferent to it, or act as though it were of little importance. Lord, teach us to examine ourselves, to walk in earnestness and openness and honesty before thee, and to realize that all this is designed that we may come into the understanding and the experience of a time of glory within such as we've never known before. Make these words, Lord, to be the experience of each of us as we learn to walk before thee, our living God, and to know what it means to have the glory of the Lord within. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.